Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, Big E Productions proudly brings to you tonight's episode of Conspiranormal with your hosts, DJ Luke Newcomb and Adam Insane. Alright, thank you so much, Producer Chris. This is Adam Sane, your this, host. This is Luke and, Reed, your co-host. Alright, well... Tonight, uh, we're going to have a very special guest. His name is Tim Yancey, formerly of uh, the Encounters Live radio show, and someone that uh, I've met a few times. Uh, should be an interesting interview. Uh, so anything on your mind, Luke? Um, can't wait to get home to- tonight so I can watch Kroll. All right, man. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an awesome movie, let me tell you. Really awesome. I think I might uh, get married someday and have a Kroll wedding. Yeah, there was a Kroll wedding actually in 1983, even before the even before the movie came out. Did you imagine <laughs> explaining that to your children? <laughs> anyway, you just uh, you'll you'll have to. Uh, we're probably the only podcast in the whole wide world that's ever mentioned the movie Kroll. But uh, we're gonna go to break here, and uh, we're gonna bring on uh, Tim Yancey. Hope everybody enjoys it, and we will be back after the interview. And we're back at Conspiranormal, and uh, I'm your host, Adam Sane, here. I'm your co-host, Luke Reed. Okay, and as we said uh, before in the intro, we have uh, on the line Tim Yancey. He is, uh, he was on a show called Encounters Live, and I'm going to let him tell a little bit of, about himself and who he is. Uh, Tim, just to get started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, and uh, anything new. Well, sure, man. First of all, thanks for letting me uh, be on the show, man. Um, you know, we, we started this, what, back on in August 2nd or so. We met up at Mid-South there. So, yes, sir. Um, this, this show's been a while in the making, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been wanting to get you on for a long time. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, we had a good time with you up there. You know, Adam, um, Trish and I uh, met a lot of people up there, and you were definitely... Uh, a great person to hang out with, so we had a lot of fun. Anyway, um, who am I? Well, I guess I'm a person that kind of wears a lot of hats in the paranormal. Um, back in 1968, my brother and I experienced what we believe was a violent haunting that uh, terrified my family for a number of years, actually. As a result of that, I've spent probably about 40 years researching, investigating, and documenting cases of uh, paranormal activity. And that was because, you know, it was an attempt to figure out what was happening to us. Um, 
you know, we, the television shows and stuff weren't there back in in the 60s and 70s as we were experiencing this. Right. Um, libraries didn't have information on it, that kind of thing. You know, and I just soaked up anything and everything that I could about paranormal because we didn't understand what was going on. Um, <clears throat> from that, I reached out through the paranormal community to others who had written books. Um, you know, in the 70s, probably the biggest case, and still to this day, was the Amityville Horror case. And I wrote a letter to George Lutz, who was um, the father of the family that lived in the house, and he answered me back. And we became very good friends um, over the years, and, and he was very instrumental in helping me understand what was happening and what was going on with our family. Uh, he was somebody who had experienced it and lived through it as well. So... From there, I, I you know when the internet first started up, I got really interested in that. I was I was in a broadcasting class in high school and had done some radio broadcasting. Um, started one of the first uh, radio shows on the internet back in the '90s, early '90s. It was called Portraits of the Paranormal, and it was about all this stuff, you know, the things that go bump in the night. And uh, Trish and I just retired from radio with Clear Channel in WBZT last year. And uh, we're kind of sitting back now and taking it easy. And Mid-South was the last conference that we did as far as paranormal stuff goes. Oh, and really? that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of my paranormal life in a nutshell. <laughs> well, you've, you've, been a, you've been a staple of that of that of that conference uh, every year that I've been there uh I be, I think except for the first year I think in 2006 but every year since then yeah uh that I've been there you've been there so you guys are a real staple for that you know we we announced there our, our my kind of I guess what you would call a retirement uh, from from paranormal conferences and conventions and things. Um, we're very dedicated to it, Trish and I, and we're very passionate about the paranormal. When we go there, we really work hard to try to meet people and and uh, you know do lectures and conferences that that have some meaning, not just to be entertainment, but to try to give people some some real practical, realistic information about this stuff and you know the problem with that is it can get very expensive it costs us about i don't know two thousand dollars you know for the three of us to fly up there and right. and work a conference and come back it gets real expensive you know um so i'm not, i'm trying to get away from that a little bit as bad as that sounds and my real interest now lies in doing some book writing um i'm dying to sit down and and pen some books, you know. Um, I got bored with radio, uh, but for me, there's a real challenge to writing books. It, it's an art. It takes some skill. It takes some, um, you know, it, it's a challenge to do that. Um, it's a different temperament from sitting behind a, a radio and, and doing that kind of thing. So I'm looking forward to doing that now. Cool. Well, Tim, uh, you, you were um, kind of a... A staple even before that, because I knew about you uh, back in the Ghostly Talk days when you used to be on that Oh, show. my gosh. Yeah. yeah with uh, Scott <laughs> L. and Doug, yeah. Yeah, the great people. Um, haven't heard from them lately. They kind of disappeared yeah. there and, and ducked out of the public eye. And, you know, you can still find them on Facebook, and, and we still, you know, kind of wave at each other here and there across the Internet, but uh, have kind of lost touch with them, and I hope they're doing really good. 
Yeah, I hope they are too. They were really great guys. Uh, Definitely. Let me me ask you, Tim, uh, uh, you did have a lot of experiences growing up that you grew up in the Mm -hmm. real, real violent haunting, uh, what would be termed as a violent haunting. Uh, Could you go, and I know that's probably going to be the focus of your book possibly, um, Mm -hmm. could you go into some detail about what happened to you uh, as a child? And to your brother too. Yeah, it's something that we don't do a lot because, you know, you relive a lot of that stuff when you do it, and and right. it, it can really take you to a dark place. And, and I don't know if you noticed during the lecture this year, but I didn't go there. I, yeah. I didn't tell the scary story kind of thing because it, it's kind of tough to do that. But, um, it, you know, even trying to frame together a timeline is, is difficult for us because this started when I was really, really young like six years old comes to mind somewhere, you know, like 1967, 68, somewhere around in there. We lived at the end of this crappy little dirt road in the middle of the woods, in the middle of no place in the swamps of Florida. (laughs) That's Uh the best way I can put it. You know, Uh, my father and mother had moved from Richmond, Virginia. They were making a new start and they had come down to Florida and they found this little apartment like um, house back at the end of a lake. And we, you know, we were really isolated and we lived way out in the woods in South and Southern Florida here. Um, I began to realize that there was something in the woods around my home. Um, my brother noticed it as well. Um, at first, there was small things. You would, you, I. The woods were my best friend. Um, as weird as that sounds, um, we had no friends that lived around us. So often, we built tree forts out in the woods and fished at the lake, that kind of thing. And we began to notice that something was there. Um, I don't know how to explain it. Um, the sounds of something following you, you would hear the the branches crackling, that kind of thing. Um, that escalated. We began seeing, you know, trees shaking, bushes shaking, the grass parting, uh, being chased home, that type of thing. And then after some time, it, I guess, moved into our house. Um, my brother would get up in the middle of the night, and he would open the back door and walk out into the woods, um, sleepwalking. And my dad and mom, I'd have to go wake them up and tell them Tom was, had gone outside again, and they'd have to go find him. Um, eventually, they reversed the doorknob on our door, and they got so frustrated at it that they'd just lock us in our room at night so that he couldn't get out. And Tom would get up, and I'd watch him, and he would open, um, try to open our door. And when it wouldn't open, suddenly our closet door would open by itself and he would go in there and the door would shut behind him and I could hear um, a conversation going on in there between Tom and somebody there were two voices in there Um, he recalled later we did a a broadcast just a few years ago or a film interview with Warner Brothers home video and it was the first time he ever talked about what happened in there and he said that there was a man in the closet and that he would pick up his toys and hand them to him because our, our toy chest was in, the, in that closet. And he could see him. He had red eyes. That's how he knew he was in there because it was dark. 
and that there was this entity that was in there. And every night for weeks, he would get up, the door would open, and he would go in the closet, and the door would shut behind him. Next day, you know, sometimes he'd be he'd stay in there and he'd be asleep in the closet when mom and dad came in. Um, sometimes he'd get back up and go back into his bed, that type of thing. Um, it, it was really bizarre. Was there were, were your parents worried that there could have been something wrong with him? <clears throat> I don't. I don't think that, that we knew what was going on at that point. I clearly understood that something crazy was going on. Um, it terrified me that our door would open and close, and I told well, my I, I could that, have, that I was could imagine. Um, <clears throat> I remember it very distinctly. Um, Tom would sometimes come over and stand at my bed and look at me, or he would stand in the middle of the room and look at the the bedroom door, trying to figure out how he was going to get out of there, that type of thing. And then suddenly the, the closet door would just open. Um, it was, it was crazy. And I, I remember talking to my parents about it and I got a variety of different answers through the years. Um, my mom thought at first that, that, you know, it was imagination, that kind of thing. My dad thought it was pretty funny at first. He was, he got, you know, it was humorous to him what was going on in our house. He often would just laugh it off because he didn't take it serious. Um, that began to escalate over time, though. We began the, the typical haunting-type scenario. It, it really rapidly escalated. It would claw us, poke us. It would throw things into our bed. It would throw wraps at us. It would throw lizards, roaches, all sorts of crazy insects from out, you know, out in the woods, that type of thing. Um, I remember seeing an apparition of a man standing over my brother's bed one night looking at him. I bolted up out of bed screaming. He interacted with me. He saw me and he turned and he looked at me. And he walked over to my bed, and as I tried to claw at him to push him away with my hands, they went through him. They went right through his, his stomach. Um, whatever it was looked very surprised, and it backed up, and it looked at me, and it disappeared. Um, we would also see shadows, shapes, banging sounds. Um, over the months, it began to turn more and more violent. It had an intelligence about it. It was very smart. It began to separate us one from the other, uh, to do things that caused anger, frustration. It kind of blurred the lines of reality. You know, it would do something and make a noise, and here would come Dad, for instance. And Dad would come in totally pissed off at us because we were making noise and we would try to explain to him it's not us making the noise it's it's something that slid in our room or or uh, you know that kind of thing something that fell over in the hallway he would think that we were up out of the room running around he'd come in there and whip our butts you know um i mentioned briefly in mid-south that our family was had an abusive uh, lifestyle. My dad was very heavy-handed when it came to dealing out punishments. I mean, I mean, if he did the things now that he did to us back then, they would arrest him and, and take him to jail, and we would be living with somebody else. I right. have no doubt of that at all. Um, 
my brother stated that in the Warner Brothers interview. He was really tough. I can remember some brutal, brutal physical contact from him, <clears throat> especially at, um, with my brother. So I think that that stuff was probably a catalyst for what this thing was and how it came into our home. And um, it saw negative energy. It embraced that. It fed off of it. And then it created all the conditions necessary to keep that going and to perpetuate more negative energy in the house, more bangings, more stuff, more bad coming in and, and beating the crap out of us. You know, um, I can remember being terrified at watching things move around our room. We had a, I remember during Christmas, there was a nativity set that my mom had put up on my little desk next to my bed and watching the figures slide around. Or I had a, a mason jar that was full of marbles and watching the marbles slide around on my desk and, and just sliding around and falling off of the desk and bouncing on the floor. And here would come dad again, you know, angry because now it's one o'clock in the morning and he has yeah. to work the next day, you right. know? And so we're going to get another butt kicking, um, that type of thing. So it was, it was for me and my brother, very, um, I don't know that terrifying is the right word for it. You're mad, you're angry because you, but you got to be up all night because of the stuff that's going on. And then the next day there's school and you have to be up and, and you're exhausted and you don't want to be there. Um, it creates a depression. Um, you know, imagine being seven years old and being so depressed and frightened and scared and tired and exhausted that life is just dark. Um, you know, that, that's what our lives were. What do you think? Um, well, first of all, this, this, uh, the situation with your dad being abusive, that already existed in the home prior yeah. to this happening. So mm -hmm. I, I've heard other cases where um, sometimes that it comes in and all of a sudden people begin to change their personalities. But mm -hmm. so there, there was really no support that, that you all had from your parents that, that something could be going on here. And Not at the start. Yeah. Um, no, my dad, my mom was very interested in it. I think she was curious about it. She would never, you know, a mother's not going to come in and, and, uh, have that conversation with a seven year old kid about the ghost that's in their room. Um, yeah. the uh, mom is more guardian, a protector, that kind of thing, and wants to offer comfort. Um, so we never had that type of conversation. She would ask me questions about it. Um, she initially was curious about it, but it seemed to focus its attention at first on my brother. Um, eventually it shifted to me, and then in later years um, toward my mom and dad. Um, and eventually, you know, it shot, I think that she was still dealing with this when she passed away in 2009. So um, it shifted its attention as time went on to various people. My dad used to tell me, <laughs> um, he used to, I would come running in in the middle of the night because of something that had happened or I was scratched or poked. And I can't tell you 
how terrifying that is. You know, it's one thing to hear somebody say, I got scratched. It's another thing to live it, to be laying in bed and suddenly the realization of there's something in your room, it's near you, it's touching you, and it's trying to hurt you. Um, that's really terrifying. And to have the feeling of, of claws or hands or something grabbing you, of poking you, of raking you across the ribs, or something that used to really drive me crazy was down the soles of your feet, laying in bed, and all of a sudden something just ripped down the soles of your feet like it was tickling you, violently tickling. Um, and I would jump out of bed and just run, screaming. Um, one night I hit the wall on the opposite end of the room, uh, just blindly running, and I snapped both of my collarbones that night and ended up in the hospital as a result. Um, <clears throat> that's that's what this stuff does and, and the type of energy that it tries to create. Um, when I would go into my dad's room, nine times out of ten, I was met with, get your butt back in your room or yeah. I'm going to, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I remember one time him talking to me and I said there was a man in my room um, and he explained to me quite, I guess, humorously for him that it was the boogeyman and that the boogeyman comes in the night and he does bad things to bad children. And that's what my father told me. I thought that he said booger man because I didn't yeah. know what boogie meant. So I, from there, there forward, called it the booger man. And that's actually the title of the book that I'm writing right now. So for me, it was a booger man. Luke, you have anything you want to ask? Um, what what kind of uh, interactions did your, your mother uh, later tell you about, you know, after moving away from the house? Some, well... We we did move away from that house, and we moved to three different houses or whatever it was followed us. Um, there's something to be learned there. Um, sometimes it's not just locations that are haunted, but, but people. Um, and I'm a firm believer in that. Um, we'll, we can talk later about some of the data and some of the information. If you look at some of the haunting cases, some of the greatest haunting cases of our generation, you're going to find that there's all kinds of commonalities. There's all kinds of parallels. There's all kinds of different things. You can find catalysts for this, and you can see common traits in families who experience violent hauntings, and it's very interesting stuff. Um, but my mother was very curious about it, and then, at the same time, very terrifying of it. Right. She was, it was not to be talked about. <clears throat> we don't discuss it for fear of, as she called it, calling something up. Um, and she had a, a very big fear of the bangs, the sounds, the knocks. They, it would terrify her. Um, as an example, towards the end of her life, she was at her home. Um, two-story home that I live in now. I, when she passed away, I actually bought the house and moved in. Um, but she was here and could hear pacing upstairs, here where I am now, in the, in the upstairs section of the house, and could hear um, feet walking back and forth on the second floor. She was downstairs <clears throat> in the kitchen, 
and called up because she thought that it was me and that maybe I was here. And she called my name and the footsteps stopped. They eventually started up again and opened the door at the top of the stairs and began to walk down our staircase. Um, she called my name again, thinking that it was me, and the footsteps stopped on the stairway. She got very frightened. She jumped up from the kitchen table where she was at and made her way to her bedroom and locked the door. <clears throat> when she locked the door and got settled in her bedroom, um, she said she began hearing objects falling, things crashing, and eventually it sounded like the entire house was being torn apart. Um, she could hear the sounds of people banging on her door, on the bedroom door, um, that it sounded like the TV was torn, um, out of the wall and smashed on the floor. Uh, and the entire time there was that pounding on the door. She wow. eventually, um, I'm sorry, this is always a little tough. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Um, that that sound eventually quieted a little bit and, and began to calm down, and she eventually got the nerve to open the door. And when she opened the door and looked out into the house, everything was fine. There had been nothing moved. There had been nothing destroyed, but it had been that sound. Um, that's really disturbing. Um, to think of what it is, what's the agenda behind something like that? And you take that incident and you analyze it, and it's nothing but fear. Yeah, it's horrible. designed. It's designed to invoke fear. And you're right. And all all of that negative, dark energy stuff that comes with that. So, um, she unfortunately, you know, up to the day that she passed away, always felt that this thing had an attachment to her. Um, when Trisha and I, my wife now, got married and started going out, um, you know, and I would bring her to the house, I had to sit down and actually have a conversation with her and say, look, um, we got to talk <laughs> because yeah. I'm a little different. <laughs> my family's a little bit, we got some baggage. <laughs> and I began to try to explain this to her. And, and I think that at first she thought maybe I was a little crazy until you know, we would come in from the movies and you open the door and you hear conversations and voices talking in the house and they'd suddenly stop when you open the door. Or we'd be uh, in the bedroom sitting, talking to each other, and suddenly a shadow would go down the hallway. Um, I remember one time her and my mom got into a bit of an argument over stuff. And this is what I found really interesting uh, about my mom. I never understood this, but she got mad, and they were having some kind of a, like a little heated words because we actually had to move my mom into our house. This house became unlivable at one point, and I had to pull her out of here because of the stuff that was going on. And so she came to live with us, and they were having a bit of a, one of those girly girl fights. And... While my mom was standing there staring at Trish, sparks started shooting out of the sockets in the room and hitting my mom in the legs. You know, stuff like that would happen. The oven suddenly would would not work and just crazy stuff like that. So I think that, that she, toward the end, was really horribly affected by it. And, and I don't, 
there have been times, if you followed me all the way from Ghostly Talk, you know that there was a time when I quit doing this yeah, for, yeah. for a couple of years. That was at that time period because I couldn't take the chance that what I was doing, my work in radio and my interest in the paranormal, could have been causing this. I really thought that maybe I was to blame and the recognition that I was giving this stuff was giving it enough energy to come and do this stuff to my mom. Um, that's, that's what I thought was going on. And so I quit for a long time. Yeah, there's definitely something to that, Tim, because I, I had an experience myself a few years ago uh, mm-hmm. where I, I started getting fascinated with the paranormal stuff and the ghost hunting stuff and all that, although I never actively did it. But I can remember uh-huh. listening to a lot of EVP. I would just sit and, right. I'd just sit around and I'd listen to EVP. Well, my mm-hmm. wife tells me one day I was cleaning the mirror in our bathroom and something pushed me down. And I was like, whoa, I better stop. (laughs) Sure. That's how it starts, you know. I think that some people, you know, a lot of the – a lot of the religious side of this and people who are devoutly religious will tell you that it's uh, giving it permission. You know, if you're using the Ouija board and you're trying to communicate, you're giving it permission to come and mess you up, you know, that kind of thing. But what I think is really happening, if you peel away all the layers of stuff that religion can sometimes place on things, um, if you have an interest in something, there's a very real chance that it will take an interest in you as well. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in that whatever energy you direct and blast out into the universe, that the universe has a great way of making it bigger and throwing it right back at you. Um, you hang around with bad people, bad things are going to happen. You know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of the way that the world works. And if you give this stuff a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, and a lot of your thought, that there's a real good chance that it's going to um, do the same thing with you. Yeah. I, I became fascinated with that, and then all of a sudden that happened, and I had to mm-hmm. stop. <laughs> Well, yeah. let me ask you too. Um, I have seen the the film that was done by Warner Brothers uh, mm-hmm. with you and your brother, and uh, he mentioned something about <clears throat> looking outside and seeing like a Bigfoot type creature with red eyes looking yeah. at him, and mm-hmm. and it kind of reminds me because down there in that area. You do have all the stories of the swamp ape and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, there's this idea that, you know, that Bigfoot and these creatures may be not physical things, but maybe some kind of supernatural thing. And, and right. it's kind of a twofold question because did you ever look into that land and that area that <clears throat> that, that house was? Because you had said it, it started happening yeah. from the woods at first. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go back. My brother always, he always talked about this over the years, and I remember him saying it, and um, he was getting ready for a Little League game. We went to, um, there's a town here called Greenacres, and they have a municipal Little League uh, field out there, and he played for the Town and Country Lions, the Lions Club that was here. Uh, They sponsored his team, and he was getting ready for a game. And he was putting on his uniform. It was probably four or five o'clock in the afternoon, so the sun was out. It was you know regular day, 
and he was getting it. He was sitting in his room, putting on his uniform, and he looked out the window by my bed and in the into the backyard. And he said that standing there was probably a seven to eight foot tall, and he called it a Bigfoot. That's yeah. exactly what he called it, you know. And and um, could it have been demonic? Could it have been uh, an entity of some kind? Sure. Do I think it was a Bigfoot? Probably not, but that's what he says it was. And that it was standing at our window, and that it had to kind of duck its head down to look into the window. It was that tall. And that it was looking in, and we had jealousy windows, those kind of you crank open, the little bitty four-inch little glass slats, you know. Um, and he said that it growled, it snarled at him, and it reached its hand through the window, and slapped him and knocked his hat off his head. And that he, he fell to the floor and crawled under my bed and started screaming for my mom. But it didn't break the glass. It didn't, we had metal screens. Um, they're, they're made out of plastic now, but back then they were made out of metal. And we had a metal screen on that window and it didn't break the screen, you know. So it could not have been real. Um, it, it couldn't have had mass. It could not have been a Bigfoot. Uh, it had to be something else, you know? Right. What about the land? Was there anything that was maybe historical mm. that had gone on there that you know of? We, it, it's, you're going to, you, okay. This is very interesting. Um, I said, I'm going to give away the ending of my book here, <laughs> which is fine okay. uh, because this is, this is, this is very interesting stuff. Just a few months ago, I was asked to be in a, a television show. It was called paranormal witness. I think it is. Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, that's, it's a over good, that's a good show. That's a good yeah, show. It comes out of London and wow. I've refused tons and tons of shows because I, I just, I don't buy the cheesy entertainment stuff of it, but wow. I actually considered this one cause I, I do enjoy the show. I've seen it like once, I think. Um, um, and they asked me to look around at the history of the land. And I had never thought of doing that before in, in my life ever. You know, I lived in a lake in the woods. What's there to study? What, you know, how can right. I figure out the history of a, a mud hole? Uh, that kind of thing. Okay. But I started to look around. Now, you remember the apparition that I told you about that came over to my, that was staring at my brother and it came over and I put my hands through it? Yes. It was wearing a military uniform. It had a flat brim hat on. And it had a belt that went across its shoulder and went across its chest to the other side and anchored down at its at the belt line. Um, and it was a military type uniform, and he wore round rim glasses. As crazy as that sounds, that's what he looked like, and he was a heavy set guy. And I remember that, and I've looked on the internet, and I've searched historical societies, and I've tried to find that uniform, and I could never find it. Okay, so when the paranormal witness guys called and they said, we want you to see what you can find out about the history of the land, I looked at the name of the closest road that we lived next to, and it was called Military Trail, and it's down here in Florida. If you ever look up Military Trail, you'll find this history, and I began to read about it, and I found out that Military Trail used to be a supply route. 
and it was for the Indian Wars that happened, the Seminole Indian Wars down here. Uh, soldiers came down and they wiped out the Indians, and the ones that were left were sent to the Trail of Tears. Yes. The military trail was the, um, the route that they took as they chased the Indians to the south throughout uh, Fort Lauderdale and uh, West Palm Beach here. My first house was 100 yards from Military Trail. My second house that I'm at now is also about 100 yards from Military Trail. <laughs> so that's what we that's what I've discovered when I actually started doing history in the land. I looked at pictures and murals and paintings of the time from the Seminole Indian Wars and you can pull these up on the internet today and there's the guy or there's the uniform with the wide flat hat and the belt that goes across it's actually holding a sword and uh the uniform of the time and that was that one entity that we saw. Tim, that's exactly what I was thinking was the Seminole War. Because I know, the second one at least, because I know that that's where the Seminoles went. They went all uh -huh. the way down to South Florida. And, and I, I have to wonder, of course, we have the Trail of Tears here, where we are here in Nashville. Right. You know, it yeah. came straight through here and the Cherokee Indians. Uh, I have to wonder, you know, is America haunted because of our history and because of the wars and all the genocide? Yeah. It, it makes you wonder. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Here's what I can tell you about that particular entity. I don't think that he was related to the negative stuff that was happening in our house. I only saw him once. It was in the middle of the night. I just woke up. Something in the room caused me to wake up. I looked over, and there he was. And I saw him that one time, that one time only. He looked at me with a puzzled look on his face as if he didn't understand why I was screaming and freaking out. Huh. And he backed away from me. He kind of tilted his head a little bit, and he looked at me, and he disappeared. So I don't think that he was a part of the dark stuff oh, the, that was going stuff, on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to go more general and kind of away from your experience, you, you mentioned about the statistics uh, about yeah. violent hauntings. Um, just kind of give some – what are some similarities that, that you see? I think that I should qualify what I'm going to tell you by saying that this is something that has been looked at for years and years and years. Um, it started with a small group of people uh, who are friends and who are fellow survivors. Some of those people include George and Kathy Lutz. They include Christopher Quarantino, who uh, we talked about earlier, who is the son of Kathy Lutz. <clears throat> they include... Stephen Lachance, who is the author of The Uninvited and probably one of the most horrifying haunting cases on record. Uh, they include Carmen Reed, uh, who at the time was Carmen Snedeker, who was the basis for uh, the movie A Haunting in Connecticut. <clears throat> um, several, several people are involved in all of this. And we have kind of quietly sat in the background and looked at haunting cases and tried to find these commonalities. And some of the things that we found are that in family situations where it's not necessarily the location that's on it, but the people, um, we find that there's usually some sort of dysfunction 
some sort of, of dynamic in the family that has that has knocked it off center. It's it's not a healthy lifestyle. It's not a healthy relationships that are happening in the family. Um, let's go down the list. In my case, we talked about my father being very abusive. Um, in the Amityville Horror case, um, you had the DeFeo family who lived there who also reported ghosts and screaming and yelling and things moving around in the house. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Ronald DeFeo actually went to Canada, bought statues, holy statues of the Holy Family and, and saints, and built concrete pads and had the, those statues placed on his property. Um, that kind of thing is, is they were experiencing so much phenomenon there that that's what he did to try to alleviate this stuff from his house. Um, there was family dysfunction there uh, as well. Ronald DeFeo was horribly, um, you know, uh, had physical violence and things going on in there, particularly towards his wife and his children. Um, Carmen Reed, the haunting in Connecticut. There was a family who uh, the son had cancer and was having to travel 150 miles back and forth to daily to go to cancer treatments and dialysis treatments um, at the time that this thing happened to them. Um, so you can see that there's some sort of hardship, there's some sort of tragedy, there's some sort of dysfunction in the family that is, uh, you know, creating a dark space, a dark energy, a, a depression uh, in the family. Right. It's something that's already there that exists. Uh, w one of the things that I've heard about, especially about the Amityville Horror, and we can go into that in detail in a little bit, but um, you you had you had said that at the um, convention, uh, and I thought about, well, why it, it's sometimes reported that after the Lutz moves out, that other mm -hmm. people maybe did not experience anything or as much. And I thought, well, there's the reason, because maybe those people didn't have as big of a problems as maybe the, yeah. the other people had. As you mentioned, like the Lutzes, they were, you know, they were kind of like uh, the Brady Bunch in a way. You know, he had married <laughs> into the family with a woman that had already had children, and there was right. some, you know, conflict and strife going on. Sure. So, I mean, those kids were were really thrown out of a life that they were accustomed to and suddenly thrust into a situation where, hey, who's this guy that mom married and right. why are we being, why do we have to move and, oh, my God, here's this creepy house that people were killed and murdered in. Uh, yeah, a little dysfunctional, a little off-center. Um, they didn't have a good time with it. The, the Amityville Horror, uh, you are an expert on that, and but the Amityville Horror has become such a, uh, it, it's, there's so much about it, of whether it was real or whether it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, what's the, the case as, as you understand it? Amityville Horror uh, is probably the most famous haunting case in history. Yeah. Um, you know. You can go anywhere on the planet and say Amityville, and people instantly think of the two windows, <laughs> you know, the two yeah, eye-shaped yeah. windows. Uh, eight out of ten people on the planet have heard of it. Um, and I think it's because, um, you know, 
everybody in the 70s absolutely positively believed that the book and the movie, that what they saw was real. I mean, it made sense. You had this family that, that had problems in the house, and then their murders happened. And then this other family moves in, and they go, my God, we're not staying here. This place is haunted. So people really believed it. Um, I think the reason it's carried on to this day also is because it's the most controversial case in history. Um, a lot of people tried to attach their name to it by stating that it was a hoax. Um, yet, those people had never been inside the house, most of them. Uh, none of them had ever interviewed the leftists at any length. Um, you know, what they did, however, was they went and they saw the movie and they went and read a book that was written by a guy named Jay Hansen. And they said, well, based on what we see here, the evidence clearly shows that, well, for instance, in the movie, there's a tree during a storm that crashes through one of the windows and they went in the house and they said, well, look, this window is the original window. It wasn't damaged. Well, yeah, that was Hollywood. It was a movie. It was called creative licensing. Um, and that's not what the Lutzes ever said happened, uh, that kind of thing. So you had a Hollywood version of it. You had a book version of it that was written by Jay Anson, and then you had the Lutzes version of what happened there. Uh, and there are three completely different stories. And depending on which one you choose to listen to, um, you know, mine being the Lutzes themselves, over five years, George and I sat and talked at length about the stuff that happened there. Um, and Kathy, and I know Christopher very well. Um, and what they have to say about that uh, to this day is that, yes, a haunting took place. And the details are very different from what you hear the skeptics talk about. So, th so there wasn't a demonic pig? <sighs> <laughs> um, there was. Um, there was an, um, a character that they, at first they thought was an imaginary friend, yeah. um, Missy, the, the daughter. Her name was Missy. And she, she began to have what they thought was an imaginary friend called Jody. Jody would appear to her as a, sometimes as a pig, sometimes as a little boy, sometimes he was as big as a room, other times he was very small, uh, that type of thing. No one else ever saw Jody except for, um, I think it was Kathy's sister who was there, who came to babysit. She eventually was portrayed as the babysitter in the movie that got locked in the closet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she did see a little boy in Missy's room one night, and he was blue. Uh, he wasn't a normal color. He was blue for some reason. Uh, but she said that, there was a little boy that would come and play with her. And sometimes he would be in the, in the um, shape of a pig. What was interesting about that is the room that she was in belonged to a, one of the boys named John DeFeo. And George always thought that it was interesting if he took the first two letters of each name, John and DeFeo, it became Joe D. Um, uh, so it's just an interesting story in a way to prove if that's real or not. There's the picture that... Uh was taken, I believe, when the Warrens toured the house of, mm -hmm. the, of the kid in the um, in the doorway. Yeah, the ghosty boy. Uh, that's probably one of the creepiest pictures I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that was taken on March 6th, 1976, by a gentleman named Gene Campbell. He had set up a tripod 
on the second floor landing and pointed it toward Missy's room. And it was on a timer, and it's infrared photography. That's why it's kind of got the, the hues and the tones that it does. Um, and they had shot probably 40, 50, 60 pictures that night, and for some reason that one shows the image of a little boy who's peering out the door uh, looking at the camera. It's hard to tell if he's wearing glasses or not, but there's a reflection in the eyes, and the eyes are just whited out on it. And, um, yeah, you're right. The, the weird part about it is that there's nobody fitting that description that was in the party of people that were there that night, and certainly there was no children there. Right. Glick, uh, anything you want to add on? I, uh, one of the most memorable things from the new Amityville horror movie, I, I believe the uh, 2000, 2004 or somewhere around that time, the babysitter was pretty cute. Yeah, she was hot. I, I can't remember her name, Rachel somebody, but uh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> I what I'm... That point. Luke is always there for those compelling uh, questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, but, though, uh, Yeah, actually it was uh, Kathy's sister, I believe. He said it was his aunt that uh, saw that little boy. Well, I'm not very familiar with uh, the whole Amityville haunting, but uh, what do you mm-hmm. think it is um, about that that stood out more than the rest of the hauntings going on at the time that um, brought it to infamy? Uh, I don't know what it was in particular. I, I think that it was already a famous house because of the murders that had taken place there. 1970. Four, I believe that was, you know, yeah. that was something that shocked the entire country. Um, you didn't have those types of things happening, an entire family being murdered, much less by one of their own. Um, you know, so that, and especially with the trial, as that went on, and uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr. claimed um, not guilty by demonic possession. It was the first time that anybody ever tried that one you know, that he was possessed and therefore not guilty. Um, of course, it didn't fly. He was convicted and sentenced to six. He eventually, originally, he was sentenced to death. He received the death sentence. And then um, it was overturned when it was ruled unconstitutional. The death penalty was abolished in that state, and so he instead served six consecutive life terms. Um, but he yeah. talks about... Go ahead. Yeah, and he's still there today. I just say that. Yeah. He is has been diagnosed with a terminal illness and uh, is not doing well. But over the years, he's given several versions of what happened. At first, he said that it was a hitman, a mafia hitman that worked with his dad in the car business. Then um, he finally confessed and said that he did it, that he had originally meant to shoot his mom and dad or just his dad, and then he just couldn't put the gun down. Um, he claimed in court that he was upstairs watching a television show, and it was a movie, a war movie called Castle Keep, and it's a particularly violent war movie, and that at some point he fell asleep. He woke up to find an apparition, a female apparition, standing over him holding the rifle, and that it had black hands. It was a hooded figure, and it had black hands, not like it was wearing gloves, but kind of like shadow people, like you hear Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking about, there was just a void, a black void, and that it handed him the rifle and told him to commit the murders. 
and he said that there were shadowy figures and voices that followed him from room to room as he committed the murders. Um, over time, he would blame just about anybody I guess he could think of. He said that Don committed the murders and that he shot her in self-defense. Uh, all kinds of crazy, crazy versions of it. So you had that going on, and then this family moved in, moved out again, um, left their possessions behind. They were only there 28 days. Who does that? You know, and then what most people don't realize is they took lie detector tests. They went to Chris Gugas, who was the number two man in the world at that time. And um, it was done just before the Merv Griffin show uh, that they did. And they said, we want you to take these tests. And if you do it and you pass them, we will put that information out. But if you fail them, we'll also put that information out. And they got the best guy in the country that they could get to do it. And both of them passed all five questions with flying colors. And I've never heard of that happening in another paranormal case except for Travis Walton. Yeah. Oh, that's something completely different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. But who does that, you know? And people go, yeah. oh, well, it's easy. It's easy to get you to fool a lie detector. Try it. Tell the guys yeah. uh, on uh, what's that show during the day, the Maury show, where they're all, who's my baby's daddy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they have to take the lie Yeah, well, they're not passing them. <laughs> so, you are so the I father. always found that very interesting. Yeah, it, it takes a degree of uh, military training to do that. The only people yeah. you hear of actually being able to pass them is uh, people who are trained to. Yeah. No, so that's – go ahead. Oh, what was – I was add something to that about the uh, the DeFeo murders is that you know, those houses are fairly close together as I understand. Like the houses yeah. are close together and he was he was shooting his family with a shotgun – but no yeah. one seemed to hear it happen. That's just well, bizarre. Sure. You're talking to me. about eight shots with a 36 caliber Marlin rifle um, at close range, and what it's even you know there was a storm going on that night. The next door neighbor reported the getting up and hearing the dog barking at night, but that he didn't hear the dog or the gunshots. He could hear the dog, but he couldn't hear the shots. And what's strange is that nobody in the house apparently heard them either. Nobody woke up. Nobody got out of their beds. All of them were found in pretty much the exact same position, lying face down with one arm extended, or with an arm extended over their heads and the right knee slightly raised up. Um, it, it's bizarre if you have ever seen the crime scene photos and seen what the, how the bodies were positioned. It's almost like somebody walked around and positioned them that way because they're all in, in the same position. Right. Um, and none of them got out of bed. It's crazy. Right. Um, yet, yet they found no evidence of drugs in their body. They, they weren't given sleeping pills. Uh, you know, the autopsy showed no evidence of drugs. Um, so nobody really understands that. And even the police department didn't get that one, you know. And no signs of struggle either. Well, right. So, since, since we've talked about the dark stuff here and the time remaining, let's talk about the light. You know, how to you is the, what is the solution? And, and when you go and help people now, what do you do? What do you tell them? 
I think that <clears throat> when you look at what's happening in these scenarios, um, as I have told my story and, and began telling it, initially in the beginning, um, if you go way, way back, uh, you'll find that I was doing this for a long time. Uh, I used a different name, as a matter of fact. I, I used nicknames and stuff. And, and for years and years and years, I've looked at this stuff. And quietly behind the scenes of the paranormal community, all of us as haunting survivors, the names that I've mentioned, have met, know each other, talk to each other on the phone, and we've pretty much come to an agreement between all of us. Um, there's, there's so many names I didn't mention in there, Bill Bean and, and just countless people on my email list, you know. Um, we're all in pretty much agreement here that it seems that there is an energy or an intelligence out there that has the ability to attach itself. It looks for those dysfunctions that we talked about. It seems to target families who um, are off-center, who are out of balance, who aren't living a good, healthy lifestyle, that there's some sort of dysfunction in the family dynamic. Okay, Barry Taff has also noticed that there are uh, levels of EMF that come off of these people, that they've measured them and that there are levels of EMS that would fry most people, um, so that there, there also seems to be a physical attribute to these types of people as well. Um, but there are other catalysts, people who are involved in alcohol or drug abuse seem to be afflicted. What are some of the other uh, traits that we see in haunting victims? Sometimes it's people who are very spiritual in nature, if you think of Father Padre Pio, who was afflicted all of his life, and, and some, some other notable people out there who are very spiritual, um, mediums and things, um, who have been attacked in the, through their lives by what they call demons. Um, so, so there are some of those catalysts and, and commonalities that we see in these families. Um, when you look at the phenomenon of what is happening, most of the time in regular ghost cases or regular ghost hauntings where there's a ghost that is seen time and time again in a house, in a castle, someplace, uh, you know, a monk maybe in a mission someplace, and you get those reportings of, of those types of sightings. Um, what do we hear about those types of cases? Um, grandma comes back and she tells and, and she tells the family that she's all right and she's passed on to the other side and that things are okay. Those types of things. Human hauntings, while they may seem frightening to the people that experience them, they're not intended to be frightening. Right. With violent haunting scenarios, it's different. All of the phenomenon, everything that you see happening related to those cases is fear-based, okay? Bangings on the walls, uh, voices, frightening voices. You hear the get-outs, the go-aways, those types of EVPs, violent EVPs that are coming in. Everything is fear-based and everything is negative in those, okay? Now, what, what can we take from that? If you look at the labels throughout time that history has given us, and they call these things demons, 
They call them genies or gens. They call them elementals. They call them succubuses. There's all sorts of labels that religion has tried to give these things in an attempt to identify them. If you peel away all those layers and get rid of all the labels and stuff, what you really have is a parasite. Okay, and right. that's that's what I use to describe it to a family. A parasite is something that comes in, it attaches itself to the family, and it feeds off of that negative energy. Okay, Dr. Barry Taff, who is a parapsychologist, calls it inductive coupling. That it's uh, two like energy sources that couple together for mutual benefit. Um, that's very interesting to me. Um, so. And looking at it at that way, and, and from that angle, rather than a big demon that has horns and a pitchfork, now you can start to work with a family and counsel a family and, and help them see a way to alleviate what's happening. Because if you go into a family and you tell them that they're being haunted by, um, you know, pick your favorite demonic name out there, and it's a third-level demon from hell they feel pretty powerless and pretty hopeless to do anything to battle that. How can you battle something that is that? But if you explain to them that they have a parasite in their home, then it becomes a little easier. And the vision and the, and the uh, ideal inside their mindset becomes, well, maybe I can battle this and maybe I can do something about it. So then you start to give that family the tools that they need. You start to put little tools in their tool belt, um, positive reinforcement type things, uh, positive energy type things. Um, if you look at hauntings, one of the things you'll find is that they try very hard to separate families one from the other, to separate one person from another. And you start to see families that everybody's in a different room, they're not talking to each other, they don't even make eye contact anymore, and in some cases they hate each other. You know, so you start to introduce the fact that um, communication is key. When you communicate with family, you're expressing love. That's a positive emotion. When you um, are able to talk once again with friends and you have that human interaction and the fact that there's just, you know, an interaction between people, that kind of stirs up the mud a little bit in in the mind's eye of, of a demonic haunting. It it, it um, makes things, well, let me put it this way. Evil doesn't get the concept of things like humor, of laughter, of those types of things. Um, and we found that when we arm people with those tools, that uh, it goes a long ways in alleviating this type of stuff. Positive energy would negate or get rid of negative energy. I think so. I think it displaces it. Um, you know, negative energy will remain in a place so long as nothing else comes along to displace it, and you have it there. Um, there are people out there who are in really dark places, and they have all of this stuff going on, and they're frightened, and they're terrified. And just to come in as a paranormal investigator and to listen, to sit down and say, tell me your story, tell me what's going on. To let them for the next two hours, three hours, four hours, just spew out their story 
and to tell you about all the stuff that's happening to them and what's going on and why their life is miserable, that's healing. To get that toxin out of them and to let them spew all of that venom out, that's one of the best things that you can do as a paranormal investigator. Just to sit there, shut up, don't be an investigator, open your ears and listen. Because right. that's nine times out of ten what a family needs the most. Right. And to not smirk, not to stop them and say, well, that's because of this, you know, and try to explain it to them. They know their house is haunted. They know that there's stuff going on. They know they got ghosts. But they just need somebody to believe them. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big part of the battle right there. And then you start to fix the family to try to give them those tools that they need to bring them back to a place of center. Don't worry about the ghosts. Don't worry about the demons. You don't have to run around and deal with that yet. You have to get the family back to a mindset where they can deal with it because it's not your battle. Okay? One of the things that Trish and I do, we use journaling quite a bit. We sit them down and we say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to write what we call morning pages, where you get up in the morning and you just write stuff, whatever comes through your head. But here's the thing. One, you don't get to talk about the haunting. You can't, you can't give recognition to the, to the banging that went on all night. We're interested in hearing positive things about yourself, you know, and that's what we leave them with. And they sit there and they go, what the hell am I going to write that's positive about me today? And sometimes they can't do it for three or four days. They don't know what to write. But eventually it may begin with a line, today I got up and looked in the mirror and I had pretty eyes. Or today I could smile at myself while I was making coffee. Those types of things. And positive affirmation. And it's such a tiny step. But it's chipping away at the beast, you know? It's, it's starting to build that spiritual armor. Hey, go out and get a haircut. You believe that's the first thing George Lutz told me? Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, I talked to him, and I said, man, all this stuff's going on at my house. He says, I hear you. And he listened, and he did all the stuff he was supposed to do. And I said, so what can I do to get rid of this? He says, hey, let's start with a haircut, because I had <laughs> real long hair at the time. Yeah. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And he, he says, we're talking about your self-image. We're talking about how you feel about yourself, you know? Let's get cleaned up. Let's shave. Let's do that kind of thing. Um, you know, again, another step towards positive imagery. Um, what are some of the things that investigators can do? Here's something very interesting. House blessings. Do they work? I think that the evidence shows that they do. Holy water and all of the, you know, the crucifix and all that stuff. Why does it seem to work? And let's look at another aspect. Why do Buddhist ceremonies seem to work? Why can we go into a house and wave sage with a feather and do a Native American ritual and it seems to work? How come in some certain rituals, Wiccan stuff seems to work? Even though they're all different religions and they're all different ways of doing the same thing, they all work. You know why? Well, I'm going to give you my, my, my thought on it. Here's the thing. I don't think that there's divine energy out there that, you know, uh, comes from holy water. Water is water, okay? But holy water and crucifixes and sage and the eagle feather that we use and all of that stuff, it's a physical, tangible 
untouchable reminder of our faith. It reminds us of the power that we have and the power of the divine. And while it doesn't have any special magic to it, it reminds us of the power that we have within our own hearts and the power from the divine. And so those tools, those little um, rituals and things that we do, like house blessings, they're very powerful. And they do have a lot of power because they, they help us target the divine, and they even... Um, if that faith is just in yourself, it helps you target that, that power that you have within you. And so when Trish and I do house blessings, we make them very joyous. We don't go in there, you know, wearing robes and being all, you know, formal and using, talking in Latin and running from room to room going, <laughs> be gone, demon. No. We tell them to invite their friends. Call all your friends and get them here. And guess what? We want all you guys to dress in white. If you have white shirts and white pants, get them. Put them on. We're about light and love and positivity. And that's how we treat it. And we make it a big celebration, a big joyous thing. And we go from room to room and we sprinkle water. Water is a purifier. It washes things away. Fire. Fire is the same thing. That's why sage works. You know, and if you can plant those symbolisms in people's heads and you can show them the power of that little symbol, um, that's huge. And that's why those things work. Sometimes they only work for a little while, and then you got to go back in there and kind of reinforce it again because people forget. Um, but that's something that we've seen. So that's another tool. Another great tool that you can introduce is humor, laughter. Laughter is the music of the heart, and it's so important in our lives. Imagine being in a place where you no longer laugh or you no longer smile. That's where violent hauntings take you, to that place of fear and darkness. So to reintroduce that to people is huge. Um, it's not unknown that if you have people who are really depressed, to get them a pet suggest to them, hey, you ever thought about a cat or a dog? Do you like dogs? Do you like cats? And now there's a partner and somebody that shows them love. And, you know, you got this little dog that's panning and his tongue's hanging out and its tail's wagging and it's falling all over the place. That's pure love right there. And it's great. And it works wonders. Um, all of those types of things, you know. And it helps to get a family back on balance. So to kind of recap a little bit, when you work with a violent haunting as a paranormal investigator, go in there, and you have to treat some conditions in certain orders. First of all, medical. If you have abuse, if you have scratches, if you have something going on, you have to treat that. Medical always comes first. If it's an abuse, if it's a drug addiction, if it's something like that, treat that and get that taken care of. Sometimes, because you see a battered person, it's not necessarily a ghost that's scratching them. It could be a bad parent. It could be yeah. spousal abuse. It could be bad dad, that type of thing. So you have to look at that, and you have to be ready to give them referrals if that's the case, and to contact the proper agencies if necessary. Um, so you have to look at the medical side of it. Then you have to take care of the mental side of it. And while all those things I talked about, humor, love, laughter, all of that, it's also critical 
not only to introduce that, but to introduce professional counseling. Now, you don't have to be a psychologist. You don't have to sit there and analyze these people. But you do have to, as a paranormal investigator, suggest to them professional psychological counseling. If it's a kid who's seen ghosts in their rooms, guess what? Schools have counselors, and they're free, and you can talk to them. Okay, if it's a family or a parent or somebody who's having an an issue, keep the business cards in your portfolio of of people that you have contacted, therapists, counselors, religious people, all of that stuff, and keep them in your Rolodex and offer them to them. Now, it's not your job to, to, you know, be the therapist, but it's your job to get them to them. Take them by the hand. Say, hey, look, we're going to do this together. You're having a problem with alcohol. You're having a problem with drugs. I know a good 12-step program. I got your hand. Let's go. And get them there. Now, they have to do the work, okay? And sometimes they won't. Sometimes there's going to be failure. Sometimes people just insist upon being haunted. I know you've seen it. If you've done any kind of paranormal investigation, you've seen those people, the perfectly possessed who wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> you know what I'm talking uh, about? I, I think that's become even more so now with all the TV shows and stuff. Sure. Absolutely. So you're going to lose some along the way, and you as investigators have to be willing to release that, to do what I call lovingly release it. I do it frequently. You know, it's like, look, here's the best advice I can give you. I love you. I'll listen to you. But I'm not going to take on your problem. You're not going to dump all of this crap on me, and I'm not carrying your 2,000 pounds of bricks. Um, Take the advice or don't. Um, I'll take you to a psychologist. I'll get you connected with the people you need to get connected with. But it's your job to do the work and and don't lay it on me, (laughs) you know. And that's something that happens, and we get get tied up as investigators with that kind of stuff. So, you know, you have the medical, you have the mental, and then you have the spiritual. And that's sometimes the most important. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about dealing with spirit, both positive and negative. And if you're going to do that, you have to come at it from a place of spirit, okay? We can be as scientific as we want. You can have all the EMF detectors and EVPs and doohickeys and things that blink and light up and all of that that you want. The truth is we're dealing with spirit here, okay? Don't provoke. Do not disrespect spirit because be careful. Uh, It can poke back. (laughs) And it can provoke back in ways that you never imagined. You're dealing with something that has the wisdom of the ages and has all the power in the world. And it will come at you in ways that you never thought possible. Are you saying, Tim? I'm sorry? Are you saying that we shouldn't go into abandoned buildings and scream at it? If that's what you want to do, if that's your thing, (laughs) go ahead. But. What happens when you poke a dog with a stick? Yep. Okay. So if, um, you know, I I really have been very critical over the years, and I wake up every morning and say, you know what, I'm not going to talk bad about those damn television shows. But then I just can't help it. It's just too much fun. Um, (laughs) You know, you have these guys that are going out there that are doing this stuff, and people are looking at them as a template. 
and they're going, oh, whatever Jason and Grant do or whatever Baggins does, that's what I'm going to do. And so you now have a group of 20, 30, 40,000 paranormal standing in a dark room in the middle of the night going, if there's something here, punch me in the face. You know, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? So my thought on this is, look, as a paranormal community, if we're really going to do this, how about we try it this way? There are paranormal experts in this field, and I know I'm going to get beat up for that, for saying that, but there are. There are people who are accredited, degreed, university professors who have an interest in this stuff, and who are out there looking at all aspects of the paranormal. In the Bigfoot community, you had Professor Grover Krantz. You have several anthropologists and biologists that are looking at this stuff that teach at state universities who have an interest in it. In the world of ghosts and spirits, there are tons of people. Dr. Susan Blackmore, who has a degree in memetics and a parapsychologist. Dr. Barry Taff, a biotechnic, you know, um, let's look in UFOs. Let's keep going. Who's that guy? Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist. Machio Kaku, uh, theoretical physicist. These guys are experts. I don't give a damn what you say. They're right. experts in this field. Okay? Uh, how about we go to them and say, what can we do as a paranormal community? As investigators who are going into these houses, can you provide us with a template, with a scientific method of how to go in and deal with this stuff? And they will give it to you. I know a lot of those people that I just talked to. I've interviewed a bunch of them on my show, and guess what? They're anxious, but they don't get invited to conferences. They don't get invited to conventions because they're not on television, okay? Um, but they will give you those templates, and they will give you the models to go out and investigate this stuff and to bring the data back. My suggestion is we take those people and we elevate them up to paranormal rock stars rather than some of these crazy people you see on television. And let's say these are the people that we want to represent us in the paranormal community and not necessarily the guy who's, uh, you know, um, acting ridiculous on television. So just one of my thoughts on it and um, kind of the way that I've seen over the last few years, this thing that we call paranormal and violent hauntings, um, it's been a long, difficult road, and there have been people along the way who have said, you know what, it's all psychological. We think you made it up, or that you believe it, but it's the result of hallucination and this and that because it's your dad, you beat your guys. You know, it's all psychological. I'll take that, <laughs> you know, if, you, if it makes you feel better. Yeah. Um, but here's the good thing. If you use the tools that we've applied and that we've talked about tonight, guess what? If it's real, it works. Because there's a whole generation of haunting survivors out here who are telling you that's what we did. Bill Bean will talk about his faith. You saw him at the conference and how faith pulled him out of a dark place. Stephen Lachance, how friendship and family and faith pulled him out of that dark place and back into a place of balance and center. I'm telling you, Carmen Reed will tell you, 
uh, George Lutz and Kathy, God bless them, if they were here, they'd tell you the same thing. Um, so that's what we're saying. That's our gift. That's our kernel of information that we can give to you as haunted survivors who have experienced this. Take it or leave it. Um, so we've seen the data. We know it works. And if it's only psychological, it works too. All of that stuff that we talked about, bringing a family back to a place of center, it works for them as well. <laughs> so right. uh, it's a win-win situation. And even if it doesn't, you haven't hurt anybody. Well, Tim, uh, we are uh, just about at time. There's so much more I'd love to speak to you about. But, uh, <laughs> Luke, is there anything that you want to add, anything that you want to ask real quick? Or? Uh, I, this is some great stuff. Uh, good show. Uh you have some good suggestions of uh, cleansing houses and everything. Absolutely. Um, you know, and well, that, that would it's been a long be road of doing this, and and you know we we've dealt with a lot of people over the years, and some of it's been wrong, some of it's been right. Um, here's the thing: some of that stuff is so far out, people are going to go, "Man, you are so full of crap." But he, but take whatever rang true for you in this conversation tonight. Whatever rings true for you. Take that kernel of information and take it back to your groups and talk about it and see how you can make it grow because that's how we how we how we learn at our normal community. So I appreciate you guys letting me rant for hours and hours and hours here. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank uh, you so I, much, I get very, Yeah, I, I get very passionate about this because it's it's something I I really believe in and, and I lived it. You know, so um, thank you for the opportunity to. To kind that out there. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Hey, stay on the line. We're going to finish this out real quick. All right. Sure. Great conversation, Luke. And uh, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Hi, right, we are back on Conspiracy Normal. Um, that was a really great interview with Tim Yancey. I just want to kind of get your thoughts on it, Luke, before we, uh, we get going here. Um, yeah, I had a pretty nice childhood, you know, I never really had any kind of abuse or anything like that. I always got all the toys that I wanted and so forth. Yeah, same and, here. Uh, yeah, but you you actually had some experiences, though, and I didn't, and I'm kind of sad that yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I did. But at the same time, you know, a lot of that does sound pretty frightening if you're a child, you know. Um, you have a big imagination as a kid and you run into things like that and you just don't really, you're not prepared for it. You don't really know how to deal with it yet. So maybe well, it's fortunate. <laughs> one of the things that I found interesting about that interview was when he was talking about um, how people kind of bring their own baggage into the situation. Yeah. So if something is there and waiting to prey on them, so to speak, uh, as a par- parasite, as he put it, you know, then someone else with another, um, with a better situation is probably not going to experience the level that they did. If right. they experience something, it might be something small. Right. Uh, I think, it, I just thought it was really one of our best interviews all, all the way around. Um, he's, he's an interesting, interesting person. Seems to know that, you know, what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and I like what he was talking about with, uh, the state of kind of like the, the paranormal today. And how it's kind of based uh, based around the TV shows and such, right? And I know that you know I, I've been kind of critical of that and, and kind of trying to 
get away from that is, myself. Is, I know that you really don't buy any of it. So, well, as much as much flack as you guys always give uh, Zach Baggins, I do like his method, and I would probably probably use the same one. Yeah, I'd probably do the same thing if I were a paranormal investigator, but. Uh, you know, that's just because, like I said before, I didn't have all of the negative experiences growing up and don't really know what it's like, so. Do you take your shirt off and show your, show your muscles? It, if I actually had muscles and not a beer gut, then yes. Uh, I gotcha. Alright, well, I think, Luke, uh, we're going to call it, and I think next time we are going to have uh, very another interesting guest named Adam Go Rightly. He is kind of a uh, jack-of-all-trades when it comes to conspiracy, and this is going to be more a more conspiracy-driven uh, show, I believe, and just interesting synchronicities and just plain weirdness. So, right on. I uh, think I'm going to call it and, uh, about an hour and 30-minute show, so uh, I think that's it. Anything you want to add? Can we maybe get some schizophrenic bums on the show later? Uh, uh, no, unless they want to talk about Kroll. Because <laughs> I think we should just do a whole show about the movie Kroll once you see it. We just do a whole show. Once I see it, it's going to change my life. It will, man. It'll change your life. You'll you'll be able to see some awesome mad shots and remember the fire mares. All right. <laughs> well, I want to have everybody good night and thanks for listening. And you can um, visit us and like us on Facebook. You will and like us on Facebook. You will like us on Facebook. You're going to. And thing will be up. Uh, links will be up on the Podomatic page. And uh, just want everybody to uh, come in and listen. And uh, we'll see you next time on Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 